Let us pause and pray. Lord, may your word find us this day and recreate us. Make us again in your image, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who have especially good memories and have been part of First Church for a few years, you might remember that uh, I preached here before I was your minister. In fact, it was exactly three years ago, the day that this passage was in the lectionary, the last time. Ed was the interim moderator at and asked if I would cover. And as I looked at the passage, I said to Ed, that's funny, the last time this passage came up was three years ago in 2017 when you were the minister in Rotorua and you asked me to preach on it then as well. Isn't that funny? And here I am again now with the preaching roster that Ed made up and I'm preaching on the passage about not murdering anybody, but even if I'm angry, I have, and not committing adultery, but if I've looked at anybody with lust. And I'm starting to wonder, what does Ed know about me that I need apparently to work on? Or what do I not know about Ed? And it's an unanswered question that I can't address in this sermon, but you can be assured it's coming up at this week's staff meeting. I can tell you that much. I could have dodged it. I could have taken the old Testament um, reading, but then I wouldn't have got to say that, would I? So that's more fun. I was watching um, television the other night, and I was watching a show in which a young scientist is talking with his widowed mother. The widowed mother is a very religious woman, and they're having an argument because the young scientist has found out that the, the widowed mother, who's very religious, has started an, a new relationship, an intimate relationship with a man. And the son thinks that this is hypocritical, given how many times that the mother has quoted the Bible to him as he was growing up. Eventually, the conversation uh, arrives at the, at the point where they reconcile, and the son says, I don't want to stand in the way of your happiness, so I will condemn you internally while maintaining an outward appearance of acceptance. To which the mother replies, that is very Christian of you. You have heard it said, do not murder, but even if you are angry with your brother or sister. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but even if you look with lust, you have already committed adultery. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. There is a bewildering intensity intensity to Jesus's words. It's like emerging from a movie theater into the midday sun. But at the heart of it, Jesus is calling us away from duplicity and towards singularity. He begins by quoting the Mosaic law. And we might think of that as the law of limitation. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. These are the very outer limits of interpersonal relationships. But Jesus reminds us that merely avoiding the worst is not the same as pursuing the best. Jesus holds these laws of limitation that curb the worst of our inclinations, like fences at the top of a cliff. But he holds them alongside deep-reaching ethics. Don't merely resist the inclination to kill. Find a way out of anger. 
Find a way out of throwing criticism. Don't merely avoid committing adultery, but find a way out of lust. Find a way out of cheapening human intimacy. And frankly, it feels impossible. And Ed keeps reminding me of that by making me preach on it every three years like clockwork. But let's put that impracticality aside for a moment. Imagine if righteousness was not an imposition on our natural desires and our inclinations. Imagine if it was a stream bubbling up from within us. Jesus says, you have heard, do not kill, but I say even if you're angry. There is the law of limitation curbing the worst, and then there is this deep-reaching ethic which calls us to pursue the best. I wonder if we are sometimes guilty of living with laws and ethics that are at odds with each other. Perhaps we have a shared social law which says, be outwardly polite, be kind and well-spoken, but an ethic that governs our inner life that says, think whatever you like as long as you keep it to yourself. A little bit like my mum used to say, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. She didn't ever critique the unniceness inside me. She merely critiqued the outward expression of it. Now, I don't actually need you to confirm this for me because I know that I live with this duplicity. A law which curbs or seeks to curb any outward harm and an ethic which almost incites me to go right up to the line. And we've all had experiences where we thought those inner thoughts were under control, and then we've said something which we meant to keep to ourselves. And I always feel like it's a somewhat hollow apology if the best we can say is, I'm sorry, I should have kept that to myself. The reality is, I'm sorry that such an unkind thought exists in me at all. And I wish it didn't, but it does. It's as if we have a law that says don't throw knives at people, which we do, for those of you wondering, but an ethic which says we can throw barbs and insults and violent thoughts inwardly at anyone who crosses us. Don't throw sharp objects at each other, but by all means, throw them around inside yourself. Who's going to get hurt by that, I wonder? Jesus seems to be suggesting that we not merely discipline our outward life, our actions and our words, not merely restrain our worst impulses away from killing someone or from shacking up with someone else, but to discipline our thoughts, to train our emotions, to cultivate a life where our yes means yes and our no means no, so that we become someone who is the same all the way down, not someone on the outside and someone else on the inside. Boy, that sounds hard. And it doesn't merely sound hard, it is hard. But again, let's not linger on the impossibility or the impracticality of this. Let's dwell on how good it sounds. Imagine not merely acting kindly, but being kind. Not simply behaving like a good person, following the rules and conventions that society has taught us, but having become good, that it flows out of us. Because the alternative is that we live 
in a state of civil war, where our hearts are screaming insults and our minds are buttoning our lips. In such a state, we're not only at odds with the people around us, we're at odds with ourselves. I wonder if you've heard the saying, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. I remember my school principal using that as a basis of an assembly talk sometime in 1990-something. It's meant to remind us that we are not merely the product of our circumstances, that we have agency, that we have choices. But I wonder if we've focused merely on those laws of limitation that we will be polite, that we won't kill anyone, and that we keep up appearances while abandoning any ethic that asks us to inwardly align with those appearances, we can have a real fight on our hands. Personally, I, I can see that I have focused at times in my life on controlling my words and behavior, believing that my emotions and my thoughts were largely out of my control that they were simply happening in response to the things that were happening in my life, to what people were doing and saying around me. So for me, with this mindset, at times I've had a chaotic interior life. And in the midst of that chaos, the goal of my faith has been simply to maintain a presentable outward appearance. But Jesus seems to be saying that I may have ceded too much control of my life, that I should not abandon my inner life to chaos, that my inner life can be a realm of goodness, of kindness, of mercy and justice, perhaps even of peace. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Anatomy of Peace because Ed told me to read it and I do things that Ed tells me, like preaching on this passage, I may have mentioned that already. It was written uh, by some sociologists to encapsulate their feelings, uh, their findings on human conflict. Thankfully, they wrote it as a novel, so it's a good story as well. And it's about a group of parents dropping off their tear-away uh, late teenagers and early 20-year-olds uh, at a, a rehab center for two months of, of um, wilderness, kind of outward-bound stuff. But first, the, the parents have to go on a two-day orientation, and this novel follows that two-day uh, period. And there's an epiphany for a character called Carol, the mother of a boy called Corey who was going on the program. And she realizes that while she's been acting kindly toward her son, continuing to support him despite him um, acting out, providing for him, and she's been doing that opposed to her husband who's been taking the tough love approach, her heart has not been in it. She has not wanted to be kind to him. It has been an act, an act that her son has seen through and called her out on a number of times. She has been playing at goodness, but it's still an act. And then her epiphany deepens. Her husband argues that it's their son's fault that she couldn't do these things genuinely, that he made it so hard for them to love him because of all of his bad behavior. But she disagrees she realizes that her feelings have been a choice, a choice that she has made over and over again to start to see him as a problem rather than as a person. And she realizes that her feelings must be her choice. She comes to a place of agreement with Jesus that our inner lives 
ought not be ceded into someone else's control. In response to her husband's conviction that her, their son is responsible for how they are feeling to him, she answers, but then we are all doomed. That's to say that our entire experience, even our thoughts and feelings, are controlled and caused by others. It's to believe that we are not responsible for who we become. Perhaps the thought of reigning in our interior lives, disciplining our impulses and desires, feels like trying to tame a wild animal. And even if it's not that extreme, it probably still feels like really hard work. But maybe it's a job worth having a crack at. Because let's be honest, the status quo isn't all that good. It's the state of civil war, and is that what we want to stick with? Because it doesn't work in reality. We think we can contain these feelings and impulses within ourselves, only making ourselves sick with them, and that we can let self-righteousness and judgmentalism or self-hatred run unchecked internally and be kind and compassionate toward others. But at best, it reduces our compassion to pretension, a disingenuous act. And at worst, those nasty thoughts and feelings find a way out anyway after having had their way with us. I wonder if Jesus' way is the only way, as hard as it seems. You might ask, as I ask myself, but isn't fake kindness better than real meanness? Shouldn't we fake it till we make it? I honestly don't know. Maybe that works. You can tell me uh, after the service. I'm genuinely interested to know. But I don't think we're going to make it anywhere good without cultivating a good inner life that fuels a good outer life rather than one that pulls us in precisely the wrong direction. If our outer lives of kindness and compassion are only ever acts and never expressions of who we have become, by faking it, we're probably just going to become better actors until we have even tricked ourselves. So what do we do now? Now that you've made us feel so terrible, Malcolm, what do we do? The work of bringing our inner and outer lives in line with one another and in line with the way of Jesus is the whole goal of faith. And it's, as one person has said, a long discipline in the same direction. It's why we're all here and it's not going to happen overnight. So let's refine our question. What are we going to do in the meantime, what are we going to do while we become these people as the Spirit hovers over us and draws us into alignment? Friends, there is only one thing for it. Forgive. Forgive, forgive, forgive. We're going to short-circuit those feelings that leap up in response to people who hurt us or disappoint us. We're going to learn how to forgive them for acting that way, and we're going to learn how to forgive ourselves for reacting that way, for recognizing that none of us are who we need to be. We're going to draw the poison from the wound, because for the time being, I am someone who still gets angry and murders you in my heart. I am someone, in the meantime, who looks with lust in my heart. I am someone whose yes doesn't always mean yes, and whose no doesn't always mean no. I am duplicitous, 
and it will take time to become single-minded and true-hearted and on the same page as Jesus all the way down. Learning forgiveness, friends, is going to buy us the time that we need. And on the way, we're going to learn and recognize that forgiveness is a skill that doesn't come naturally to us. It needs to be learned and it needs to be practiced. And so over the season of, of Lent, which starts in about 10 days, we're going to explore forgiveness in an intentional way because it is a stepping stone toward the kingdom. It's a waiting room where we can linger while we become the people God is calling us to be. Forgiveness is breathing space. Forgiveness is stopping our lives from being a pinball in somebody else's pinball machine, where we're simply fired around, reacting to the things that happen to us. Forgiveness, therefore, is freedom. And friends, I say this as someone who hardly knows how to forgive. But, like Moses climbing up the hill to look over to the promised land, I have seen it. And I think it's somewhere that I want to go. And I wonder perhaps if it's somewhere we could go together. So let's ask God to lead us into the way of peace, the way of forgiveness. This God who so thoroughly says yes to us and to our world, let us say yes in response until we have learnt to say it with our whole being to God and to one another. Amen.